In this episode of 2000 Books, marketing guru Roger Dooley and I talk about how to tap into that 95% of your customer's brain that ultimately makes the buying decision. We also talk about how to build a tribe that loves your business. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Roger Dooley is the founder of Dooley Direct, a marketing consulting agency. He also co-founded College Confidential, a leading college-bound website. Roger is a marketing guru and has spent years in direct marketing as the co-founder of a very successful catalog firm. Today, we're talking about his book, Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. And the best thing about Roger is that he's an engineer, just like I am. And it's always fun to talk to a fellow engineer and geek out with him on this podcast. So I'm excited to have you on the show, Roger. Welcome. Hi, Manny. Happy to be here. Thank you for ha- thank you for being here. Um, first, let's talk about why why does an ambitious entrepreneur need to read this book? Well, I think that the key concept that I start the book with is uh, that ninety five percent of our decision making processes are non conscious. Uh, that is, it's not the sort of rational conscious decision making that you. Uh, think about when, uh, and you often imagine your customers are using when they choose your product over a competitor's product. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, those choice processes are just completely uh, non-conscious and the consumers themselves, your customers themselves aren't aware of them. So uh, to me, that would be uh, the number one reason because what I do is go into a variety of ways uh, where you can reach uh, your customer's non-conscious mind. Got it. And uh, let's Let's talk about your personal story. What led you to writing this book? Yeah, uh, boy, we could uh, consume the whole uh, interview here with uh, my personal story uh, due to my advanced age. But uh, I think uh, I started off life as an engineer and I always had an interest in psychology and I always had an interest in advertising and marketing. Uh, Over time, that morphed into uh, a... uh, an uh, entrepreneurial venture as uh, a direct marketer. In the early days of home computing, I co-founded a direct marketing business, a catalog business. This was pre-internet. And at the time, though, it was a very quantitative kind of marketing. We could do A-B tests, square inch analysis, and so on. Uh, kind of um, minimal by today's digital standards, but uh, that, that was good preparation for what came later. And then about a dozen years ago, Uh, I saw the confluence of two areas, neuroscience and marketing, and uh, started off by registering a domain, neurosciencemarketing.com, seemed logical at the time, and about a year later, I started writing there, and now I've got over a thousand articles there, I've got a few hundred articles at my Forbes blog uh, and my book, so I've been writing ever since. Yeah, you have a vibrant blog and a vibrant podcast, and of course, we have something in common, which is we're both engineers in our past lives, so... Yes, great, great background to be from, I think. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to be doing engineering today, but I think that uh, the uh, logical uh, processes that it teaches you and the problem-solving approaches that you learn uh, are really valuable in any career. So, uh, so Roger, let's give the readers like really big-picture overview of the book, like 10,000 feet overview, really quick overview of what this book is really entail. What does it have? Well, what I wanted to do was create a book that uh, translated 
uh, sound science into very actionable business advice and something that would be very readable too. So what I did was I uh, created a book with a hundred short chapters uh, that you could almost start anywhere. You don't really have to start at the beginning if you don't want to. Now uh, the first chapter or two are probably a good idea to sort of uh, become familiar with the concept of why the non-conscious uh, portion of your marketing is important. Uh, although certainly I think many people recognize that today. But, you know, often uh, we focus just so much on the features of our products, the specifications, the uh, physical benefits to the customer and so on, that um, uh, we lose track of the importance of the emotional, uh, the irrational and the non-conscious side of things. So what I did was uh, created a hundred short chapters, uh, each of which incorporates more or less a one actionable strategy that's based on science. And I have them grouped into different areas, things like uh, uh, pricing, different ways to make your prices appear better to the customer, uh, copywriting, uh, how to, what kind of trigger words to use, uh, and uh, some logical sections like that. But you can pretty much open it to uh, any page, start a chapter, and uh, uh, get some kind of an idea. Not every idea will be relevant to every business, but hopefully quite a few will be. Yeah, it's a whole kitchen sink of techniques, I mean tactics uh, for marketing in some ways for uh, for applying in your business today. Maybe not all of them apply to your business, as you said today, but they are great to get your brain thinking in a different way, you know, in the ways of the marketer. Uh, so Roger, uh, let's talk about, let's abstract ourselves from the tactical level. Let's get into more strategic. Let's talk about the three big picture, meta level strategies that we can abstract from the book that, um, and that's what our listeners really want to get out of this. So let's, let's start from the top. Right, well, I think the uh, first thing is one, one that I already mentioned, and that is uh, that since 95% of your customers' uh, decision processes are non-conscious, you really have to focus your marketing on that. Yes, you need those specifications and features in there most likely, uh, unless you're selling fragrances or something like that, uh, where it's going to be an entirely an emotional sell. Um, but often those are sort of to let your customer's conscious mind justify the decision that the non-conscious mind makes. And I'm, I use a number of 95%. Uh, various neuroscientists have different numbers. That one's from Gerald Zaltman at Harvard. And I think the, the key takeaway there is just that uh, an awful lot of the decisions we make uh, are not made in that kind of uh, conscious, rational, grinded through fashion that we think about uh, when we uh, talk about uh, decision-making or thinking. And so, and so that's, uh, that's the number one thing. And then once you realize that, uh, then you can focus on different aspects of your marketing, whether it's a landing page on the web, a mobile app, uh, a print advertisement, or whatever, to ensure that uh, some of those non-conscious elements are being addressed too. Yeah, I, I think, I'm not sure who said it, but there's a famous psychologist who said, oh, we're not thinking beings who feel, we're feeling beings who think. I think that's what we're getting after here. Yeah, you know, and I think um, uh, often the feelings come first, and that, that's a key realization. So uh, I um, may decide to buy that uh, cool red sports car and... Uh, it's really because uh, maybe I'm having a midlife crisis or I want to be uh, more youthful and attractive or whatever I uh, subconsciously think I'm going to get out of that. 
But uh, also, I need those uh, justifications. So when a friend says, well, why'd you buy that car? Uh, I can tell them about you know, how great its resale value is or the gas mileage or something else. But it would be a mistake to focus the marketing on those aspects. Yeah, one of the things yeah, I think you talk about is the idea that uh, um, we've already made our decision or we've already gone through the thought process even before it reaches our conscious mind, even before we realize that we've come to a decision, Right. So our brain right, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the strange things. Uh, when scientists put people in an fMRI machine uh, and ask them to make a choice, uh, they could see the choice uh, being made uh, several seconds before uh, the subject actually pressed the button indicating that they had made a choice. So they could, they could see the decision happening a lot earlier uh, subconsciously uh, than when the individual was aware of it being made. And that's really important. That's, that's exactly like putting the whole idea together that our 95% brain, which is more like the subconscious part of the brain, more of the brain that doesn't really necessarily even communicate in language, that part has already made the decision. And now it's just coming back to the conscious to relay it out to the external world in some ways. And uh, we need to be able to talk to that emotional brain as marketers. Right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of ways to do that. The, um, uh, often it's as simple as choosing the right word. So, for instance, uh, if I use the word rough instead of difficult, uh, they have approximately the same meaning uh, as in I had a rough day or I had a difficult day. Uh, but rough is a sensory um, metaphor. Uh, and even though in that context it has nothing to do with physical roughness, uh, it actually uh, lights up. Uh, that sensory area in our brain as if we were touching or imagining a piece of sandpaper. So uh, sometimes it's just as simple as uh, using a word that's going to be a little bit more powerful in a given circumstance. So in some ways, we need to be talking to the five senses. We need to be evoking our senses in order to really be able to address that. Well, it's certainly yeah, the, uh, sens um, sensory marketing is one aspect uh, the unfortunately, most businesses don't have a lot of opportunities to do the full range of sensory marketing. If you look at, uh, for instance, a hotel chain, they actually can do it because they have people in their environment, so they can uh, work with sound. Uh, I was in a um, hotel in uh, San Francisco that uh, whenever you entered the elevator, there was this, a strange little sound of... Uh, uh, like a rushing sound, and that was part of their sonic branding. Uh, hotels use scents, and so that they always have a distinctive scent when you walk uh, uh, in the door or, uh, or around the property. Uh, so when, when you're in control of the environment, of course, in my, many cases, the only means of communicating is via, say, a website or via a print ad. So then uh, sensory marketing is a little bit more difficult, but there are a lot of other tools, too, that uh, can be used. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole school of evolutionary psychology that says that uh, even today, when we are uh, using our iPhones to be on Facebook and so on, uh, that actually... Uh, our brains are still operating with the same software that was created 50,000 years ago when we were hunter-gatherers. Uh, and so stimuli that would have been appealing to our ancestors uh, still work and cause us to behave uh, in ways that we don't really anticipate or are even are aware of. Right. So really important idea. We need to talk to 95% of our brain. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the next key idea, Roger, because there's... Right. Uh, and 
That is, and this is something that I always say, you know, before we get uh, too far down the road of discussing some of these great uh, uh, techniques that you can try, uh, and that is the importance of testing. Uh, the and, and, of course, in some environments, you can't really test. You have to sort of make it do your um, best to uh, uh see what's going to you think is going to work in your environment and do it and then uh you know hopefully it does or you'll you'll get feedback over a period of time but in today's digital world it's often very easy to test alternatives so if you think that uh, a particular headline would be more powerful on a landing page or a home page uh you can try uh both and see which one generates more clicks or more sales or whatever it is that you're trying to do and just because an expert, whether it's me or somebody else or somebody, something that uh, you saw in a book or even something that came out of a test on somebody else's uh, website or in somebody else's ad, uh, that isn't necessarily always going to work in your situation. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of that where if you talk to conversion optimization experts that do a lot of A-B testing, uh, they certainly have some best practices in terms of uh, making a call to action visible, being sure that the a customer can see what they're supposed to do and so on. Uh, but uh, when it gets down to applying specific techniques, like for instance, social proof is, is a common one. With social proof, uh, you are saying we have uh, 40,000 customers or uh, you know 100,000 readers. Uh, you are using uh, these numbers to show that other people are doing this. And it's a, it's a very sound principle of psychology that when people see other people doing something, they are more likely to be persuaded to, to do that thing themselves. When you are choosing a restaurant uh, and one has a line going out the door and the other has mostly empty tables, uh, despite the inconvenience, you're probably far more likely to pick the one with the line because you think, well, these people know something that I don't. Uh, but as powerful as social proof is, 95% of the time, uh, there are those circumstances where uh, putting social proof on a landing page or a call to action of some kind actually decreases response. Uh, sometimes you may be able to hypothesize why that is. Well, maybe uh, that number of customers didn't sound that impressive. You know, maybe 10,000 customers didn't sound good if uh, your customers were figuring that, well, you must have a million or two. Uh, who knows? But uh, you can never assume that something will work. So that's why testing is important. Yeah. And sometimes the consumer might assume that this doesn't, like, the level of customers that they have isn't what I can aspire to. So this is not what is good for me. So there's so many reasons why something that works for right. one business wouldn't work for your business. So and that's why I guess us engineers, we kind of like this stuff because, you know, math, it comes down to splitting it, testing it, uh, constantly figuring it out rather than resting on our laurels or resting on someone else's uh, uh, test data that tells us that that's what works. Marketing is, a, it, in many ways, it's a game of statistics rather than a game of creativity. I mean, it's both, but really you need to dial down your numbers to get the best result out of it, to squeeze the most out of it. Right. And uh, one thing that I find exciting, too, uh, certainly uh, A-B testing on uh, either websites or mobile apps is a very powerful tool. But occasionally, uh, a company does not have the volume to make that work. Uh, if you're selling uh, Ferraris or uh, uh, power plants, 
uh, you, you can't do an A-B test and say this, this call to action worked better because the number of sales is going to be so small uh, that it won't be statistically significant uh, and be very difficult to prove unless you test over a period of 10 years or something. So uh, one thing that I'm excited about is that some of the tools of uh, neuromarketing, uh, and these are things like uh, facial coding, implicit testing, uh, eye tracking, and even EEG uh, are coming down in price dramatically. So what I'm uh, expecting is uh, that in the coming 12 months, 24 months, some of these tools will become accessible to companies of just about any size. So even smaller entrepreneurial organizations uh, could either acquire that equipment or find a a small contractor with the equipment who's able to help them at a reasonable price. Because in the past, neuromarketing studies have cost tens of thousands of dollars. And we're pretty much out of the reach of uh, companies other than the uh, Coca-Colas or BMWs of the world. Uh, but I think now it's going to be much more democratized so that uh, even entrepreneurs will be able to use some of those tools for uh, pre-testing. And that could be particularly useful where uh, uh, A-B testing is not practical because of, say, very low traffic or a very low order rate. Uh, so that's that's one uh, option. And the other uh, option, too, for testing is uh, using a service that specializes in uh, uh, videotaping users as they interact with your website or your mobile app. Uh, and that's not a perfect system, but uh, that, too, can tell you something about uh, whether people are succeeding or not. And so all, all of this is a little bit separate from the uh, uh, sort of uh, neuromarketing strategy piece of, say, uh, adjusting your copy or your imagery or whatever, uh, but it's important uh, to do. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point where we will be able to uh, get those tools to be able to read people's emotions and see what's really going on real time. There are tools, as you said, I was at a TED event, a TEDx event a few years ago, and there's a startup that was doing precisely that. All you need was a camera and a computer, and you can assess exactly what emotions a person is going through, even mm -hmm. without um, them telling you what they're going through. So you can do some hardcore testing without having to eat the truth out of people. Right. And, you know, usually uh, A-B testing is going to be cheaper if you have the traffic uh, to support that. Uh, but uh, sometimes that's just not practical. And, and so uh, for those uh, times, or if you're trying to understand things like the emotional association with your brand, if you're selling a, a, a product that perhaps uh, you're hoping to have a specific kind of association in the consumer's mind, uh, some of the neuromarketing testing, like implicit testing, can be really good at uh, determining whether, you know, you think you've got a, a youthful, adventurous image, whether your customers uh, think of you, your product or your brand as youthful or adventurous or, or not. Yep, got it. So let's, let's, let's talk about the next big idea here. Um, what is it going to be, Roger? Well, uh, one thing that I uh, think is important is, uh, if you can, uh, building... Uh, a tribe or a community, uh, and that can influence uh, things in several ways. First of all, uh, any time that you can show what you have in common with your customers creates what Robert Cialdini, who's the uh, father of persuasion psychology, uh, would call a liking effect. Uh, so if you are selling pet products uh, and you can uh, use uh, images of you with your dog or your cat or uh, perhaps a, a bunch of pets, uh, that will 
make your customers think, uh, well, it'll, it'll invoke the liking effect because you're showing what you have in common with them. And that'll increase their trust and the probability that they will uh, uh, do business with you. Uh, and that's, that's, that's just the first level. Even if you don't really have the sort of product uh, that you're going to build a community around or a tribe around, uh, even, even then, just creating that liking effect is useful. Uh, but beyond that, if you can uh, take to the next level and try and differentiate uh, you and your customers from your competition and, and their customers, uh, that can be extremely powerful. I think uh, maybe the best example of that uh, is uh, what Steve Jobs did at Apple for years. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, with his 1984 commercial, uh, he portrayed uh, the competition as this sort of um, uh, strange uh, uh, 1984-ish uh, uh, Big Brother character, uh, and and the cu- and the customers uh, as sort of mindless gray drones that are just sort of uh, 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 you know follow direction without thinking, uh, and then uh, contrasted that with the uh, attractive young athletic woman. Uh, uh, who uh, came running up and smashed the giant screen and, and that portraying uh, Apple and their customers. So, I mean, that was that was the first one. The, the next commercial was not nearly as um, uh, well executed or as viewed as much, uh, but it was Lemmings uh, that was really uh, totally in the vein of portraying uh, the competitor and their uh, customers as uh, Lemmings who would uh, march off a cliff. Uh, compared to the somewhat heroic uh, Apple customer who thought independently. And then uh, they had the Think Different campaign that, again, contrasted uh, them with their competition. And they returned to that when they had the uh, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC uh, series of commercials that were very entertaining. They were very funny, uh, but uh, they really portrayed uh, their own customers as sort of young, hip, cool, uh, attractive, uh, and uh, the competition is kind of bumbling and nerdy. So, uh, you know, they, they've exploited this over the years. And one thing that that's done, it's turned their own customers into uh, remarkable advocates for the brand. You know, if you ever uh, dealt particularly in uh, sort of the earlier years, now uh, their products are so pervasive, they're uh, more mainstream, but in in when they were a small percentage of the computer industry, and they weren't in the in you know dominating the phone industry, uh, their uh, users were almost cult like uh, in their attachment to the brand and their defense of it, and that's certainly something that every company would really like to have: are uh, users who will. Uh, when challenged, completely defend the brand and uh, uh, act as salespeople and evangelists. Yeah, and and the amazing thing is it all starts with, or it's all started, for example, for Apple with uh, Steve Jobs taking a stance in the sense the company taking a stance that this is what we stand for. These are the values we stand for. And uh, I think while Steve Jobs was there, uh, you could see those values there. But when he departed, uh, the company kind of lost direction and he, he came back and again those values were revived and people started believing in Apple again. So it's like uh, that recognizing that or being able, being having the strength to stand for what you truly believe in, that really empowers our customers in some ways. Right. Well, you know, I think um, a part of the reason for Apple's success is that Steve Jobs was a uh, unique product guy. Uh, he could really understand 
what people would like and what people would use if they had it available. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, he was kind of an unreasonable manager, perhaps, and you know made demands of his design team, uh, did not do uh, focus groups or surveys, figuring that the customers didn't know what they wanted anyway, and uh, that uh, they'd know it when he gave it to them. Unfortunately, um, most of us are not Steve Jobs, and occasionally you find uh, people in uh, their businesses who uh, think they are and take that same approach of sort of ignoring external input either from other people in the company or from the customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's often a mistake. Uh, I just uh, had a conversation with uh, Al Pitampali, who wrote a book called Persuadable. And uh, his uh, key thesis is uh, that most successful leaders uh, are very open to ideas from others. They still have the ability to discriminate between good ideas and bad ideas, but nevertheless, uh, they can be persuaded. If somebody makes a valid uh, uh, point, uh, they can sh you know, nod their head and say, yeah, okay, you're right, I buy that. Uh, we won't do it my way, we'll do it your way, uh, which uh, I don't think was a very uh, jobs-like characteristic. Uh, but you know, if if you've got that level of genius, I guess maybe you can get away with it most of the time. Well, yeah, and and, and uh, just to just to be fair to Jobs, I mean, there were there were he was kind of strict, and he was you know he was uh, uh, not easily uh, swayed. But people who were able to influence him, even if they were three or four levels down, people who were able to challenge him, he held deep respect for those people, and he was always. Uh, he would always admire people who would challenge him and change his, be able to change his opinion in some ways, though it right. was not easy to do that. No, and, and even Alan's book points out that there were a few cases where he appeared to be persuaded by others, uh, despite his uh, uh, general approach of, uh, I know what the world wants, uh, get out of my way. Yeah, but, but just to like circle back on the big picture idea, what we just talked about for the last key idea is that we need to be able to stand for our values and build a tribe around that rather than uh, be generic, rather than be serve be a, be someone who is going to serve everyone. Right. And, you know, uh, one of the surprising things is you think of uh, building a, a tribe as being very difficult and, and trying to build, say, a, a real community around your product. Uh, it is challenging. It does take a lot of work. But surprisingly, uh, uh, people can be uh, persuaded to be a part of one group uh, rather easily. And there were uh, uh, some great uh, experiments run by uh, Henri Teifel a while ago that uh, showed he could divide a room into two groups of people with the most arbitrary things. These people have uh, a green uh, dot on their monitor and these other people have a red dot on their monitor. And uh, in a very short period of time, uh, he would have the green people uh, um, uh, bonded with each other and actively discriminating against the uh, the red people. So uh, it it can be not not that we should be out manipulating our customers or potential customers, uh, but in some ways, uh, creating that emotion of cohesiveness uh, is a little bit easier than some people might think. Got it. Yeah, this is this is really this is really powerful. So Roger, let's let's close the interview with specific action items for our listeners because here we believe that there is no learning without action so to, uh, give us some guidance give us some homework here 
Right. Well, the first thing I would do is a little bit of reading. I mean, obviously, my book is a, is a uh, one thing I'd recommend simply because I think it's very consumable and practical and actionable for businesses. But uh, other books like uh, Robert Cialdini's Influence, I think it's the best-selling business book of all time, uh, talks about the uh, underlying uh uh, principles, which he has six of, uh, of persuasion psychology, uh, and that's a great read as an introduction. Uh, there are uh, many great books on individual aspects. If you're dealing with uh, websites, there are books about web design psychology, uh, uh, things like Webs of Influence by Natalie Nahai, Neuro Web Design uh, uh, by Susan Weinshank, and a variety of others. Uh, Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think uh, is not a psychology book per se, but it's uh, something that I would recommend that anybody involved in designing or you know, operating websites read. Uh, so, and, and there are uh, books specifically even about pricing psychology, if, if you can imagine that. Whole entire books written about uh, how uh, people perceive prices and how you can make your prices seem more appropriate, lower, and, and so on. Uh, and you don't have to read everything right away, but first getting uh, familiar with some of the concepts out there I think is, is really an important start. Uh, the next thing I would do uh, is look at uh, your current messaging, whether it's in print ads or a website or whatever, uh, and see, uh, first of all, is it focused on the customer? Um, I uh, created a little model called the persuasion slide and uh, identified different elements in it. And the first one is gravity. And that is what the customer comes to you with. Uh, and often I see websites that are very focused or advertisements, very focused on us. We, uh, we're the best company. We have the best product. We, this, we, that. Uh, and uh, that is not why people are coming. They want their pain points solved. So you ought to have the focus on you. You know, here's your pain point. Uh, you know, here's a solution for your pain. Uh, the uh, So uh, look at all of the messaging and then look at how much of it is sort of rational, things like uh, features, specifications, mm. uh, all, all those sorts of rational things, which, which as I say, uh, it may be appropriate and necessary to include uh, some of those. Uh, it may be uh, what you probably don't want to do is include too much. One thing that you'll see now uh, as... Uh, e-commerce companies get a little bit more attuned to consumer psychology uh, on many, many websites. If you see, you see it at Zappos, you see it at Amazon, uh, at uh, eBags, many, many others. Uh, they have uh, the product description that uh, cuts off after a few lines, and then there's an indicator that you can read more by clicking a link. I like the way Zappos does it because they actually fade out the last line of text. So there's a visual cue that there's more there because when uh, customers see a whole pile of descriptive information uh, that kicks them into a different, more cognitive thinking style, uh, and it may cause them to uh, sort of get into this uncomfortable, analysis uh, hard work, yeah, uh, thinking, you know, thinking process, and they end up um, uh, may making they may make no decision at all. So, to some degree, uh, if your customers are likely to make an emotional decision. You can hide most of that information, but for those customers who need or want that additional information, you make it available on a separate tab or by clicking a link or something. Uh, so and, you know, going through the whole uh, messaging, looking at the imagery, is this imagery that is going to uh, play into your customer's emotion uh, or uh, is it some uh, cheesy stock photo that's going to look like a stock photo of you know, two people shaking hands or uh, you know, some guy uh, with a smile on his face staring at a screen or something? Got it. So it's a really try to understand uh, um, your messaging out to the world and see 
how much emotion you're putting into it compared to logic and try to find a way to get more emotion, more of your 95% brain involved there. Right. And then the last thing uh, I would think about uh, building first that liking and then uh, the tribe, if that's feasible. In other words, first of all, can you show things that you have in common with your customer? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, you know, it may not even be a uh, something that's product related. Obviously, something that's product related is best. If you're selling uh, fishing products, showing uh, the uh, owner of the company or the CEO uh, out on a lake fishing would be uh, a, a way to do it. Uh, other times, it might be showing them in a natural setting uh, with uh, maybe some kind of recreational setting with their dog or whatever uh, that uh, at least is showing that some of their customers, that, okay, uh, a, we've got a human here, uh, and B, I have something in common with that human because he's uh, doing something or there's something in that photo that I can relate to. Uh, and then uh, then taking that to the next level and seeing if it's possible to uh, point out uh, things that all of your customers have in common. Uh, try and say, this is what makes us different from everybody else and and build a tribe around that. Got it. All right, Roger. So this has been great. A lot of interesting, a lot of uh, very educational stuff. So thank you very much. Uh, tell our listeners how to get a uh, hold of you, find more about you, uh, read your blog and all that stuff. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, the easiest starting point is rogerdooley.com. And I've got links to my neuromarketing blog there, uh, which you want to go to directly is at neurosciencemarketing.com, uh, my Forbes blog, uh, my books, and so on. So that uh, rogerdooley.com would be a good starting point. Uh, I am fairly active on Twitter, where I am at Roger Dooley. And I forgot to ask you one question because we talked about so many books, but your all-time favorite business books, three of them. Wow, uh, that's uh, that's a tough call. I would have to uh, list um, uh, Cialdini's influence there because, uh, no pun intended, it had a big influence uh, on my work. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Differentiate or Die by Trout is a uh, useful book because uh, even though it's not so much focused on the uh, psychological aspects, uh, it is a uh, uh, it really points out a key success factor uh, that many companies overlook. Uh, when they try and be like their competition instead of showing how they differ from their competition. Uh, and then uh, one uh, maybe uh, not quite universal choice, but uh, that I think is is a great read. Uh, if you were involved in trying to create products that are customer habits, in other words, uh, things that people will do again and again, uh, I'd recommend Hooked by my friend Nir Eyal. Uh, he's been on my South by Southwest panel a couple years running now, and uh, he has uh, dissected uh, consumer behavior, uh, particularly in relation to digital products like apps, and shows why, say, Instagram and WhatsApp uh, were have been so incredibly successful when there were many other uh, photo sharing and messaging apps out there, uh, but the psychological factors that they use uh, to um, keep creating, to keep users coming back and back and attracting new ones. Great. Uh, well, we'll have uh, Nir on the show pretty soon as well. So uh, thanks for the shout right. out. Well, he's just up, up the coast in San Francisco. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure your listeners would enjoy hearing him. Yeah, definitely. Um, great. Well, thank you very much, Roger. Well, Manny, it was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. 
So my ambitious friends, I just wanted to let you know that we have a very vibrant YouTube channel with nearly 10,000 subscribers and tons of book summary videos. You can get mind map videos, animation videos, and a whole bunch of great videos summarizing some of the greatest entrepreneurial books of all time like Think and Grow Rich, Millionaire Fastlane, Good to Great, and a whole lot more. We have around 60 book summaries there. So just today we put out another video that shows three specific ways in which we can generate confidence on command, especially when we are in high-pressure situations. And I know that's really useful for an entrepreneur because we get ourselves in high-pressure situations quite often. So if you would like to check out our YouTube channel, just head on over to 2000books.com channel or text the word channel to 44222 and we will send you the link. I'd love to connect with you on the channel, so come find us there. 